This podcast is brought to you by Eisner Award-winning Legend Comics and Coffee in Omaha, Nebraska, and supporting listeners like you. Go to TwoHeadedNerd.com and click Donate, or visit Patreon.com backslash TwoHeadedNerd to become a supporter today. Ha-cha! Broadcasting from the what may be forever quarantine ziggurat in Omaha, deep below the metro area, it is our pleasure to welcome you to episode 567 of the Two-Headed Nerd comic book podcast, where my co-host and I are standing six feet apart and yelling at each other, but that just means it's a normal weekday. My name is Matt Bob. I don't even remember what the outside looks like. I know, right? I am the internet's Joe Patrick. This week, we're hosting a special spotlight review on eight different B, eh, B is being generous. I don't know. I'm just kidding. Yeah, a couple of mine are close <laughs> B, to E's, probably. B-list <laughs> B superhero titles, team books from across the comic time stream. After that, it is up to the THN Sanctum Sanctorum, where we're going to tell you all about what we are being forced to read next week. And finally, Vagrant Queen made the jump from the page to TV, which means the curse that binds us here also makes us a captive audience to every comic TV adaptation. So stay tuned for the Vagrant Queen edition of Nerd TV with bonus Picard coverage, because I wanted to talk about something that was actually good. But before we tell any more COVID-19 jokes only to find ourselves living in the corpse-filled streets and not finding them so funny anymore, how about we distract ourselves with some editorial madness and discuss this week's Nerd News. Nerd News. Uh, we have a bit of good news, I guess, or interesting news at least, <laughs> from the shit we can't and will never be able to afford desk. <laughs> the Ian Levine collection is up for auction. Okay, who? He's been a record producer and a pop mogul working with Pet Shop Boys, Erasure, Bananarama, Kim Wilde, Billy Piper, Simon Cowell, producing Take That's first singles, etc., etc. <laughs> oh, the Take That, Ian Levine. Yeah, Thank yeah, you, you know. <laughs> uh, he has worked with Doctor Who as a continuity advisor. He's rescued a number of Doctor Who stories from being destroyed and inspired the character Absorbaloff. <laughs> Well, that's something you could put on your resume. I right don't know there. who that is either. Uh, he also owns the largest DC Comics collection outside of Warner Brothers' own vaults, with every single issue published by DC or its predecessor, National Allied Publications, from 1935 to 2016. How many comics is that? That's though? like at least 100 comics. I think it's closer to 40,000 oh, DC it's comics. 40,000 DC <laughs> comics, including Action Comics number one and Detective 27. It includes very rare Ashcan editions, foreign reprints, promo editions that were basically commercials. I was going to write porno editions to see if you would read it. Uh, yeah, no. <laughs> it is uh, It is being offered up for auction as a complete lot, which means you want it, you need it all. That is nuts. <laughs> 40,000 comics. So, let's just stop there for a second before we go further into this story. 40,000 comics, including the first appearance of Superman and the first appearance of Batman, which yeah. are currently the two most expensive comics that have ever gone to auction. Yes, correct. So who buys this? 
Somebody very rich and probably very anonymous. <laughs> like a Saudi oil baron yeah, or something? Yeah, like somebody or... that doesn't make waves as being one of the richest men in the world, you know what I mean? Right. Yeah, like Japanese Yakuza wizard. Right. You know? Yeah, <laughs> yes, a, a, a Japanese Yakuza wizard. Uh, Ian has been collecting DC Comics since 1960. Uh, when he was eight years old, he read JLA, Justice League of America, and started collecting back issues in the 70s way before it was cool or before they were worth anything. There's a good chance that, yeah, like he went and found the first appearance of Superman and the first appearance of Batman way back in the 70s. When sure, it was it was still worth something, I'm sure. Don't you, like, we used to get old copies of the Overstreet Guide in the, in the, into yeah. the shop, like... Oh, it's the very first Overstreet Guide from 1970-whatever. Action right. Comics number one is listed in here for $50. Right. Totally. Because nobody knew what it was worth. Right. Nobody even was paying attention. Yeah, it's exactly. crazy. In 2010, Levine's collection was used to supply the illustrations for Tashin's 75 Years of DC Comics, colon, The Art of Modern Mythmaking, which was like a huge coffee table book by uh, Paul Levitz for... Former president and publisher of DC. Now, the auction record for any comic was achieved in 2014 when Action Comics number one sold for $3.2 million. That was six years ago. Right. The record for an issue of Detective Comics 27 uh, was reached in 2010 for $1.075 million. It, so it should be said that the only reason we haven't seen comic uh, those issues sell for more than that is because these two comics that were auctioned were some of the highest graded editions that exist. Yeah. And and when I say highest graded, I mean like the one the action comics number one that sold for three point two million. There is not another action comics number right. one in that condition. Right. It doesn't it was, exist. It came back <laughs> as a you know a, a, a four point whatever or whatever it was. Right. Uh, so we don't know what the condition of these comics are in his collection, but it almost doesn't matter. Like, this is going to smash auction prices. There's no question. So based on the costs, the previous costs of action and detective at 3.2 and 1 million respectively, I'm guessing this complete collection goes for at least $4 million. <laughs> yeah, I think you're right. <laughs> at a bare minimum. Yeah, that math checks out. I don't know. What kind of a price can you even put I, on look, something uh, like this? If you were to ask me as somebody not trying to grade anything or put or or, or determine a, a, a value, I would say that a collection like this is priceless. Right. Like an, and uh, it, like an ancient antiquity. It seems like putting it up for auction as a complete set is just stupidity. It's just stupid. Whoever gets this is going to get it for a steal. They're going to spend a bunch of money, but there's like a level where it hits a roof. Like no one's going to throw a billion dollars at this. And quite honestly, th this could be worth close to that. I don't know. Well, I mean, there's a, there's a definite <laughs> steep decline in value once you get past the golden age. Well, sure. But even so, just based on sheer volume. A billion is way too strong, but maybe a hundred million. That's insane. That doesn't, that doesn't sound unreasonable to me. And I don't think anyone is going to spend that kind of money on this. I think it's going to go for something stupid, but it's not going to go for like buying a professional baseball team level stupid, you know? Sure, right. Because, yeah, exactly. Because what, because what is the return? You, you almost can't sell this. It's, it's just insanity. Well, it's I, blowing I, my mind. I, like, I just, I don't, I don't even understand, like, 
Why would you be doing it, especially now? And why not say, okay, here's the golden age of DC. Here is the silver yes. age of DC. Why aren't you piecemealing it? Here is the modern age of DC. And that's just three auctions. And if one lunatic wants to buy all three, he's got all three. And you've made more money that way. It's, but to do yeah. 40,000 DC comics at the same time, that's stupidity. I'm, I'm saying it's dumb. It, 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 is, it is literally a number that I cannot imagine. And whatever number it ends up being will be way less than we think it's worth. Yeah. Ian's an idiot. If I saw him, I'd cough in his face. There you go. <laughs> From the Save Our Comic Shop's desk. TKO Studios, the non-diamond specialty comic book publisher, they don't need no diamond daddy, has issued the following edict for comic store patrons during the coronavirus epidemic shutdowns. This is from TKO Studios, by the way. Comic book shops are the lifeblood of our industry, and coronavirus is threatening their existence. Over the last week, we've seen empty comic book shops, mandatory shutdowns, and shop owners worried they will not be able to keep their stores afloat during this pandemic. TKO Studios wants to fight back. Until the end of the coronavirus threat, when any customer chooses a store during checkout at tkopresents.com, TKO will send that store 50% of the purchase price, which is the exact same amount the store would have made selling the physical book at their brick and mortar store. If they had ordered it through Diamond or directly through TKO. Right. They go on to say comics will persevere and yada, yada, yada. Joe, is this possibly the sweetest thing that a publisher could do right now? I mean, it's a pretty great idea. Uh, a TKO, I actually don't I don't know enough about them to know whether or not they also solicit through Diamond. They don't. But I know that they definitely are direct to consumer. Yes. Uh, Brian Domingos has been on THN cover to cover to talk about them, at least on one occasion. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, you can just like order... You can order like a box set of the first six issues of something or a right. trade or whatever. They were they were another group of creators that basically got together and said, we're going to try this other sort of distribution idea that's not digital, physical distribution idea. And these ain't nobodies either. This is like no. Garth Ennis has a big book. And it's a relatively cool idea. When I first read this, I was like, mm, that sure seems like a PR stunt to me. But. The people behind this are real, like you said, they're real creators with real names. And I do think, even if it is a promotional stunt, it's not a bad one. I and mean, there are parts in the right place. I guess, I, you know, we're, we're living in an age where, like, every other email I get is from some brand telling me how much they care about me. Right, of course. And how much they are concerned for my safety yeah. and well-being. My student loan company has been so sweet yeah. during this whole thing. <laughs> and, well, like, part of me, the cynical part of me is like, yeah, 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 fuck off, uh, Grubhub. Mm -hmm. uh, the other side of me is like, well, I can't be, Figure out what's open, DoorDash. <laughs> yeah, like, I, I can't be mad at them for being nice. No, I can't. There were some people that... There's always jerks in the internet freak out about stuff. And at first I was like, well, you know, I mean, it kind of sounds like they're trying to take advantage of something, but fuck it. You're a small, you're a small producer. Yeah. That's not in Diamond Comics that is trying to show there are other ways to do this. Diamond is shut down. You're not. You want to take advantage of that and give 50% of your sales to a comic book store literally for nothing. Just to be nice. Right. And, you know, uh, look, good I, for you. I looked into it and it doesn't just seem to be like, Here's a list of our favorite 15 comic shops. No, 
They're like, name it's, your shop. If Prove your it shop, exists. If your shop is not on the list, here's a document where you can put them on the list. Yeah, and it's literally like we just need to know that they have a physical address right. and prove it. Yeah, and that's yeah, good exactly. Like our my friend Menachem in New York, Escape Pod Comics, he said, uh, oh, ha-ha, what happens if you don't carry their products? Ha-ha. And I looked, it, I looked into it, and it's like nothing. They don't give a shit. Nothing. Yeah, they don't give a shit. Put your name on the list. If Escape Pod smart. Comics is on the list, they get 50%. It's smart. And like at this point where they're like, there's really nothing to grab and you're trapped at home and maybe your local comic store has been forced to close and you want some physical product and you grab this and go, hey, that was pretty good. What are you going to do when your store opens again? You're going to say, you should carry this crap. I would like to read more of it. It's a good idea. It is and a it's good coming idea. from a good place. I think this is fantastic. I think it is a, a, a it is a rare bright light in our current sea of gray haze. It's uh, look, man, it's shitty out there. Uh, and anything that anything that any of these publishers can do to like lighten the load on retailers or or readers even is a positive in my book. Let's talk about the next story from the not so rare, not so bright light desk. <laughs> All right. Well, OK, this is an interesting story uh, following the shutdown of Diamond due to the coronavirus parentheses COVID-19, which is a much cooler name. It is. The comic book industry has devised a temporary solution to get new books into the hands of readers. According to Bleeding Cool and corroborated by retailer Ryan Higgins of Comics Conspiracy in Sunnyvale, California, quote, Where Buffy grew up. Yes. Oh, that's Sunnydale. Sunnydale. Oh, my bad. Sorry. Uh, Within the next two weeks, you will be able to buy a physical comic from your local comic shop anywhere on earth online. You'll be able to read a digital copy the minute you buy it. Your local comic shop will get a free physical copy to give you later. This is implemented by a small company called Comics Hub, which is a point of sale system used by a handful of retailers that allows readers to purchase books from their local comic shops online. Okay, it, real quick. I looked into Comics Hub because I'd heard of it before, but I didn't know how it worked. Yeah. And I was like, bullshit. So they're going to make all these people buy Comics Hub. Comics Hub is actually kind of cool because one of the things that we talk about whenever we talk about sales is actual sales. We know retailers ordered this shit. How many actually sell? And Comics Hubs allows retailers to report those sales. So you actually get a number. Sort of like Music Scan used to do for bands and crap like that. So here's a little bit of inside baseball regarding Comics Hub. Uh, in 2014, Dave, Jason, Wendy, and I went to San Diego for the Eisner Awards. Right. Uh, the first year you guys we had were sex with the Comics Hub guys. The first year we were nominated. Yeah. Uh, we met Stu Coulson, who is the owner of Heroes for Sale in New Zealand, a comic book shop in New Zealand. Uh, Stu is the originator of Comics Hub. Oh, really? And, yes. And Legend was actually one of the original test shops for the program that would eventually become Comics Hub. Uh, for uh, any number of reasons that you might you might guess, uh, <laughs> things did not guys, work out. You guys slept with him. Yeah, we we <laughs> definitely had sex with him, and it soured the relationship. <laughs> Um, but yeah, so like I know Stu, 
Uh, I've known him for a while. He is an incredibly smart and forward-thinking retailer. And he has been working on something like this for years. Right. Uh, Comics Hub, it already lets publishers, well, it lets it lets shops upload preview pages that are provided by publishers to their website. So right. uh, let's say, you know, uh, Diamond says, hey, here you go. Here's a preview of Hellions number one. Yeah, they can kick it up. Comics Hub can kick it up to their website. Yeah, so that's already in existence. So they can kick up theoretically. In theory, they can kick the full issue. Up you there can too. put the full issue up there right. for uh, for any local comic shop online, which would allow readers to have instant access. Once shipping resumes, the idea is that they can redeem their purchase for physical copies from their local comic shop. So it's not it's not a digital first initiative. It is right. saying you are ordering your copy of uh, Batman 92 from Legend Comics and Coffee in Omaha. If you choose not to pick it up, whatever. The comic shop got the money and they're good. Right. right? The, money go- the money goes to the comic shop. The comic okay. shop pays Diamond. And Comics Pro says, here is your digital copy. Or not Comics Pro, I'm sorry. Comics Comic Hub. Hub says, here is your digital copy. Now... There is some controversy, which we'll get to. Um, they were initially planning to kick this off on April 8th for, right. the, uh, for the existing 100 Comic Hub partnered stores. Uh, they, will, they also plan to expand it to the Comics Pro membership, which is the uh, National Comic Book Retailer Organization, on April 15th. And then very soon after that, expand it to the entire direct market, which means every comic book store. That's awesome, right? This is awesome. It sounds awesome. We're back in the reviewing new comics biz. Uh, This sounds awesome. (laughs) (laughs) This news came in the same week that DC initially announced and then recanted that they would still be releasing digital comics as usual on Comixology. And you know that Marvel had planned on that too. I think Marvel was waiting to see which way the wind was blowing. Yeah, they saw DC announce and everyone went, boo, and then Marvel yes. just sort of like backed out of the spotlight. <laughs> <laughs> many retailers, uh, many publishers. What? No, we weren't doing that. Yeah. No. <laughs> many publishers, including Marvel, indicated that they would be suspending new releases. And then DC said that their April 1st releases, which should have been out today, uh, or yesterday rather, have been pushed back until the end of the month. For the time being, we'll see if those even come out. Right. Uh, outspoken retailers like Brian Hibbs uh, from San Francisco, he calls it a fig leaf. A fig leaf that Marvel and DC, uh, that the big publishers used to cover their junk up while they waited for a chance to go all in with Comixology and just say, I fuck it, digital comics I- for everybody. I also think, yeah, the paranoia is that this is a, no, we're helping you. This is how we do it. And we've just happened to create a perfectly all digital platform (laughs) that we're all using now. What could possibly go wrong? The the thing about Comic Hub (laughs) is that it's not like the comics were coming from Comixology. Right. They were saying, hey, we uploaded the file to our own website. Right. So you have purchased your comic. When print resumes, you will get it in theory. 
if you want to read it before then, go to comichub.com and read it. And there's a, there's a lot to there's so many moving parts to this as well because pencils down also means that creators aren't getting paid. It, I mean it yeah. sucks yeah. because comic shops aren't making money, but creators are not getting paid too. And without creators, we don't have comics period, digital or physical. I mean the idea uh, I, I, the the main impetus of this idea is is that retailers get paid, publishers get paid, creators get paid, diamond and get, nerds gets get paid, comics in their hands, and you know? nerds get comics in their hands. But so many retailers are so paranoid that this just teaches, yeah, readers to abandon print in favor of digital. But That's I had same- a conversation with our friend Chase Magnet. Uh, occasional contributor to THN, and he made a lot of excellent points about how the audience, the 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 primary audience for digital and the primary audience for print are completely separate, without a doubt. And there is no evidence to indicate that even if you provided digital access to print collectors, that they would abandon their lifelong hobby. It doesn't hold and- water. And I an, like Brian Hibbs. He's a smart guy. He is I smart. think he's completely paranoid here. But he is also a doom and gloom retailer. He's he a, is. A doom and gloom print or die retailer. Right. And as much as I love comic shops, another point Chase had was that the alternative to releasing digital comics when there is no print comics available is that nothing is released. And if nothing is released... For two weeks, four weeks, four months, eight months, our hobby will die. Yeah, absolutely. Our hobby will die and comic shops will go out of business. And so is it or is it not better for something to be produced? Absolutely. I I think there there is no argument. And I think there is more of a danger of it not being present than giving it, making it present and giving them the people who want physical comics later. We don't right. have a choice right now. And the industry is in such a dangerous place that I don't think we can look at any of this as a gift horse. You know, I think you have to say, we got to do what we got to do. And this, look, is this going to push digital in a different direction? Probably. But you can't stop that. Go yell at the ocean. I mean, Go outside like, and yell at the weather. Go yell at the coronavirus. You're not gonna <laughs> stop it. You know there there are de- like there are definitely le- uh, legitimate logistical concerns. Like how is any small comic shop going to suddenly deal with an influx of X number of weeks of print comics? Right. How are they going and, to keep track of all those orders over the entire quarantine? But, yeah, and, and another aspect of that is what is how is Diamond going to handle this? But the, the the fact the simple fact is this is the only solution that I have seen that makes any bit of sense at all. Yes, I agree, and I get why they're scared. But again, you cannot stop the digital revolution. You can't, and throwing a fit about it. And shooting yourself and the industry in the head to prove a point is not the solution. Well, another thing is that if you think that diehard print readers that are vehemently anti-digital are going to suddenly pay for digital comics, right? Instead of pirate digital comics, I think you're you're kidding yourself a bit. 
Right. And if they decide they do want those physical issues, they could be tough to find. I don't know. Yeah. So I don't know. It's a weird it's a weird time. Everything's up in the air. Stu and Comic Hub is uh, they are making at least an attempt. And I have to applaud them for that. Even though there might be kinks to work out, I think this seems like a really a really positive first step. Absolutely. I, I, I think it does. And I get why people are scared. But at the same time, we have to make hard decisions right now. And one of those hard decisions is will comics survive at all? This seems like a great way to keep them alive. I agree. This is editor Matt from the future with some late breaking news. Shortly after we recorded this story, the whole comics hub idea was scrapped. So back to the drawing board, I guess. That is your nerd news for the week, but I'm sure we missed plenty of other stories while studying the clandestine comics wiki. It is fucking nuts. It is and we'll a get rabbit that in a little bit here. <laughs> so hit us up on the THN forums, big news section, or any of our social media outlets and talk to us about these stories or anything you think we missed. It's spotlight review time in the ziggurat, and due to the interruption of new comic shipping, we're doing things a little differently. This week, Joe and I were forced to read four comics each with the theme of B-list superhero team number ones from across the comic time stream, 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 stream. Joey, before we get started, what do you say we wet our whistles with a, a little cocktail of the week? Because the ludicrous speed round might not be here, but we're still alcoholics. Justin, what are we sipping on this week? Hey, nerds. The cocktail this week is Hung V, the death of the American comic shop. It's probably the most difficult drink I've ever put on the show. Here's how it goes. First, you're going to make a shadow puppet with your hand of a dog, pointer to pinky. You have what we like to call four fingers. Four perfect fingers. You didn't take a rock's glass. You put the fingers up to the glass. Pinky at the bottom of the glass, pointer at the top. You'll take bourbon, any bourbon you have, any bourbon you can get your hands on, and go all the way to the top of the pointer finger. We call that four fingers of bourbon. That is what we call a Kentucky funeral. Rest in peace, comic shops. Joey, now that we've got our Kentucky funeral drinks, why don't you uh, start us off, sir? Honestly, I need a couple drinks to get through some of these or even talk about them again. Yeah, boy. Uh, my first review is The Order, number one, from Marvel Comics uh, from the far-flung year of 2007. I believe we used to call this The Odor. The Odor. Uh, this actually, this came out, this came out and died before we started the podcast. It's true. Once upon a time, Matt Fraction wrote for Marvel using his prodigious imagination in service to the House of Ideas. One of those ideas was The Odor. <laughs> a team book featuring all new characters created to be celebrity superheroes in the wake. I totally forgot. Of civil this was Matt Fraction. I yeah. forgot. It was in the wake of Civil War. Was this an initiative book? It was the initiative, yeah. It was the okay. initiative team for California. Okay. The only problem was that some of the so-called heroes couldn't cut it, and the ones that could only had a year to change the world for the better. Fraction does a great job setting up the premise of the team and giving team leader Henry Hellrung, yeah, yeah, a sense of history that did not <laughs> previously. Young. It did Give not Fraction previously a break. Exist. He was young. 
The character designs have a bit of uniformity like you'd get from a corporately branded supergroup. It's a nice touch, and the issue is beautifully illustrated by Barry Kitson. Whatever happened to that guy? Barry Kitson's still around. Uh, I mean, he's like, done some things, yeah. Didn't he just do something a couple years ago that we we reviewed? A he couple definitely did. of years ago. Listen yeah, to like in the last two years. Listen to yourself. I'm looking it up. The Order was a great idea for an event spinoff that was canceled way too soon. I don't know if you recall, Matt, but this was originally supposed to be called The Champions. But at the time, Marvel got into a legal dispute with the role-playing company that owned the name Champions. Who is that? Uh, I don't think it was TSR. I don't remember who it was. But huh. there was I, I distinctly remember a role-playing game in the 80s and 90s called Champions, and Marvel could not call this book The Champions because of it. Huh. No kidding. Uh, however, I'm giving issue one of the order a buy it. It's really great. I did a search on our site. To it in there, 205, Nude Time Travel was the uh, title. And it said that I'd searched Barry Kitson. So one of these was a Barry Kitson book that we reviewed. Oh, it was Empire Uprising. Oh, Empire. Yeah, the Empire Revival. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. right. There we go. Now, when See, did I, when did episode two hundred five come out? Just just for shits and giggles. That was twenty fifteen. Twenty fifteen. That was five two years ago. Years ago. Two years ago. Just like five. I said. <laughs> so let's stay with the initiative for a moment, shall we? Because we did not talk about this, and I picked a book from two thousand seven as well. And hey. I think it's because I have like really good memories of Marvel's initiative. I don't know why. <laughs> I picked Omega Flight, number one, oh, from Marvel, also in 2007. I know that I loved this issue when I first read it, but I was curious to see how writer Michael Avon Oming and artist Scott Collins' first stab at a good guy Omega Flight team would hold up today. The story takes place in the initiative storyline that took place after the first Marvel Civil War. Cap was dead. Tony felt guilty. It was a whole thing. Canada is looking for a super team without so many damn Canadians. So they get the newly returned from death Sasquatch to put together a team with some support from U.S. agent and ex-spider woman Julia Carpenter, now calling herself Arachne, which sounds like she has pockmarks all over her face. CTHN565 for more on Julia, by the way. <laughs> the cover also features Beta Ray Bill, who was supposed to join the team, but... Never made it before the title was actually canceled with issue number five. Oh, I thought it was just a miniseries. Wow. <laughs> no, it was supposed to be an ongoing series. It got canceled. It's too bad because this incarnation of Omega Flight was really great. Had it been titled Alpha Flight, who knows? Maybe it would have lasted a few more issues. <laughs> Colin's art is just chunky and weird as hell here. I forgot how nuts he went after his Flash run and how much I dug his evolving style. He draws Sasquatch like he's 25 feet tall. Arachne is flipping upside down and doing the splits. U.S. agent looks like he's jumping right out of a G.I. Joe action figure card painting. For a book that is mainly set up and talking heads, Collins packed this with just like lunatic excitement. <laughs> I remember being happy the Civil War was over and excited about the B-list heroes getting a chance to shine with new creative teams like this one. Kind of wacky creative teams too. They tried all kinds of young stuff. Matt Fraction was one of those creators. Omega Flight was fun and it felt like Marvel was actually taking a risk here. It did not sell, but it was also fighting a sea of other initiative titles. I'm giving this a buy it. I loved it. <laughs> 
Yeah, it was good. I do feel like it. Um, I, I do feel like it was a little bit too decompressed, uh, and part of that, I'm sure, is like it got canceled after number five, so they yeah. thought they had more time. <laughs> they had to sum it up. But uh, this this particular issue, like Sasquatch, is the only person on the team that actually shows up. Pretty much. Uh, I mean, there's Talisman, but even she doesn't she doesn't join the team in this issue either. No, they talk about her dad. She is on the cover, though. She She's on the cover, but they're talking about her dad, who is dead. Shaman, yeah. Uh, yeah. So, uh, like, this 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 comic takes place in a very specific time capsule in Marvel history. Uh, it Not only does it follow the Civil War, but it also follows uh, Brian Michael Bendis' new Avengers run, where that random guy from Alaska absorbs all of the mutant powers that uh got erased oh, during M Day. I forgot about that. And he's the one that killed Alpha Flight. Yes. He murdered Alpha Flight. And so he is the one in this book that is dressed like the Guardian. That's him. Yeah. But he does not show up in this issue. <laughs> no, I think he shows up in the next issue. Yeah, uh, like they allude to it. There's, there's, they. Sh- I think they briefly mention him or show him on a view screen, and Sasquatch gets all mad. Yeah, because um, like they're like, well, he's gonna, he's in prison, and he's agreed to do this. Yeah, yeah. Because or you know, like a Suicide Squad type thing. Yeah, yeah, right. And it's like you're gonna take Guardian, a guy that wears a Canadian flag, <laughs> Canada's Captain America, and you're gonna put a mass murderer. Well, and also, <laughs> like, the guy is from he, Alaska, not Canada. Right, he's not even Canadian. <laughs> like, um, come on. I think that's racist, technically. I don't know. <laughs> uh, but you know. I, this also this is this is Scott Collins like fresh off of his run on the Flash, yeah, uh, with Jeff Johns, and he is at the height of his powers. It's a it's a fun book, and I would have loved to see it fleshed out a little more in this first issue. It's a shame it got canceled before it did, uh, but I really liked it. I'm giving it a buy it as well. You know, I I read some stuff digging around on this that Michael Avon Oming said, and he wanted to call the book Alpha Flight. And they ended up settling on a mega flight and it was going to be this sort of like Canadian suicide squad type thing. But his long goal was to like tell this story and then have them realize this does not work and put Alpha Flight back together and write an Alpha Flight book. Yeah. And it's just like, ah, yes. There's even a line in the issue about why it's called Omega Flight instead of Alpha Flight. Right. And at least they addressed it. But yeah. I, I think this would have done better if it was called Alpha Flight. Oh, no doubt. Without, I mean, just any name recognition would have done better. Joey, back at you. All right. I am going back in time way back, way, way back to 1988. The New Guardians, number one from DC Comics. This followed the events of the massive Millennium crossover. The New Guardians launched featuring a team of mostly brand new characters tasked with bringing about the next stage of human evolution. It's an impressively diverse cast uh, for the 80s. And writer Steve Englehart doesn't shy away from commenting on the political and social climate of the time. There's a lot of like talk about uh, the AIDS crisis. Yeah. Um, One of the members, Extrano, is overtly gay and they never made any big deal about it. He's just like, yeah. And that was unheard of at the time. However, 
as with a lot of comics from that time, there are some eh, maybe problematic, definitely distracting depictions of regional dialects, <laughs> specifically with Jet, the British Jamaican woman uh, <laughs> who talks like the worst Chris Claremont caricature. Now, I have always loved the work of artist Joe Statton. He is a classic, legendary artist. He's been around forever. He's got an exaggerated uh, style, uh, especially with his faces and figures. I thought the creative team does a fine job establishing the, the super team's place in their current world, but not quite enough establishing the individual characters. We do, like, we do get a little bit like, I'm Jet. And this is what I do. I'm gloss, and this is what I do. But right. it's all very surface level. It's hard not to feel a little bit punished for not reading the 45-part crossover that preceded <laughs> it. No joke. Millennium. Yeah, like, you fucking nerds like to cry about crossover events. They, man, the shit that we get now, nothing compared to what they used to do. Where it's like, this is a seven-year crossover. Yeah. yeah. And it's not like it's not like today where it's like, yes, uh, Avengers versus X-Men is a 12-issue series. Right. But you only have to read those 12 if you want. Right. No, this was like Millennium Week 1. In Superman, <laughs> Millennium Week 2, in Batman, Millennium Week right. 3, in Millennium Number 1. And they would print, like, in DC Comics, like, there was, like, Millennium, you know, checklist. Yeah, yeah. And it was two pages! <laughs> it was insane! So, like, if you read, if you picked if you picked Millennium Number 1 off the shelves, you were like, oh, great, awesome, I can't wait for Millennium Number 2. Right. And you bought Millennium Number 2, you will have missed, like, 12 chapters. <laughs> Like whoa whoa whoa! You didn't read Supergirl, Catwoman, The New Warrior, you know, like New Guardians. Like you didn't read Hawk World. What about Booster Gold? Are you even a of comic fan? Of course you don't know what's going on. You miss yeah. Challengers. You know? <laughs> uh, I am though. I am giving New Guardians number one a skim it because I I like the uh, attempt at being like socially relevant. I, I know right. it's I know it is definitely a product of its time, um, but hey, they went for it, man. Yeah. I mean, you got to take into account, though, back in the 80s, a lot of writers were were doing that, like, I want a dialect in my comic, and I want to establish that this is not just a white person or a black person or an Asian person. They're from a place, and in that place, they talk like this. So I don't think that, like, Jet was coming from a racist place or anything. I think oh, they no, were legit. I don't think so. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I think they were legit trying to illustrate who this character was. Maybe it's not as tastefully done. Well, and the villains, the villains in this first story arc are straight up white supremacists. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. This is by. I mean, if you want to say like, oh, I don't like, you know, when the creators bring politics into their comics. This is a perfect example. This was going on in 1988 for crying out fucking loud. (laughs) I hated this when I first read it. Honestly, I was just like, ugh garbage and then i read some of the other stuff that i was reading and i had to like think back to 1988 this is how teen books were introduced yeah this like, is what they were i i, I mean and I, I have to give them so much credit for opening the book like the very first line of the book was well ronald reagan's on his way out and the next four yeah. years ain't looking any better <laughs> yeah. yeah i mean like the new guardians was cheesy and it was very surface level but it was also pretty punk rock yeah. and i i liked it i'm giving it i'm 
you know what? I'm giving it a buy it. <laughs> I really oh, am. Well, I thought it was fun. Right. I mean, that's more generous than me, but just for what it was. I, yeah. Like it was punk rock. I mean, it, it's hard. It's hard to look that far back and judge something objectively when we have all of our right. current, our current, you know, opinions and whatnot. But yeah, I mean, for what it was, I liked it and I got to give him kudos for going for it. Yeah. Joe Patrick, I'm going to go even further back in history to 1994. Oh, no. Clandestine, number one. My book came Marvel. out in 1988. <laughs> I know, it's a joke. Oh, okay. It's, haha. Matt doesn't know math. It's sorry, yeah, you're a joke. Right. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> back in 1994, Alan Davis got tired of drawing other peeps' creations, so he made his own team, and they were a super family. Kind of a weird one, but we'll get to that. We meet the kids first, Rory and Pandora. Wiki, their wiki mentioned them being 11, but I would say David draws them here by like they're at least 16 or 17. Yeah, I mean, you know, they don't look like 11 year olds. They don't look late. They don't look that little, but yeah, that's true. Yeah. Alan Davis's art was just intense, but his story is friggin' all over the place. It's in London, the Swiss Alps, outer space, Nepal, and then Ravenscroft. Is this the same as the ruins of Ravenscroft that's going on right now? Uh, well, Raven Ravencroft or Ravenscroft Institute was definitely a presence in the Marvel Universe in the 90s, yes. Right. No, but it's the same one that's happening now? Well, yeah. In the I pages mean- of... Ruins of Ravencroft, which is like the spinoff from the Absolute Carnage. Yeah, I mean, back then it wasn't like, ooh, it's like our version of Arkham Asylum where everybody's a (laughs) murder. No. Like back then it was just like, yes, this is a psychiatric hospital for the criminally insane. I was just kind of shocked. So anyway, the kids think they're mutants, but they're not. It turns out Rory and Pandora thought they were living with their uncle and grandmother, but it turns out they're all brothers and sisters. From the same parents. Oops, all siblings. <laughs> I forgot how much I used to love Alan Davis's art. This book came right. This book came out right after his second Excalibur run, and it really looks great. And if you go back, I, I went back and looked at some of my old Excalibur books that he drew. They were gorgeous. He was a master, and this is him at his best. This book was beautiful. Yeah. I got to say, Clandestine number one holds up really well, and it's not timeless by any sense, but it was wacky British superhero fun drawn by a master, and I'm giving it a buy it. I found it kind of irresistible. Okay, now I will say that I don't think that it seemed dated. I, I think that it seemed like an artist trying to be a writer. You know what I mean? Um, okay. I mean, there was definitely some, Not like... Not in a bad way, just, like... Fashion a, stuff a ten, and, well, like, yeah, I mean, they sure, were trying but, to do that, like, definitely dated Well, things. yeah, of course, but <laughs> I, I don't think that, like... I don't think that it... It didn't feel dated in the way that New Guardians felt dated. Uh, Fair enough. Like, yeah. I think that, you know, if you update the styles or whatever, that it could uh, it could have come out today. And, in fact, he did clandestine spinoff books all the way up until, like... Shit, I think I think one came out while we were doing the show. There was definitely something in the last 10 years. I remember that. And now, if you go and read the clandestine wiki, which, of course, I had to because I love... It's wild, baby. I love reading comic book wikis. They're so bad. I would bet you $1,000 that Alan Davis wrote that wiki because it is the best written superhero comics wiki <laughs> I've ever encountered. I love clandestine. I've loved clandestine since the moment it came out. Uh, it had a very, very time appropriate, era appropriate, yeah, gold, hollow foil cover. 
so impossible to duplicate that if you read this book on Marvel Unlimited, it's just a white background. <laughs> like they like legit could not scan that cover. Uh, well, that's not something they thought about. You know, back no, then. I know, I know. Um, you couldn't have seen that coming. Yeah, know? like I read this on on the Marvel Unlimited app. Uh, all of the clandestine comics are on Marvel Unlimited. You're it's like welcome. The rub the blood cover. No one could have known that digitally that is not going to work. <laughs> you know. Uh, but yeah, it, it's great. It holds up in in a way that like. Yes, it's not it, it, it's 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 not the most well-written comic in the sense that like Scotty Young, he is an artist first, a writer second. Sean sure. Murphy, he's an artist first, a writer second. Uh and he falls in all the same habits like things are a little too, bit too wordy. Um But it was but, charming. But it's it was, charming. It was, it's charming. It's definitely charming. The concept kicks ass. It's uh, bizarre. The concept is is so dumb oh, that but it I works. love it. Yeah, that, but that just did because they're just like it's British magic. Yeah. <laughs> I'm oh, like this off. gets a buy it for me. I, Clandestine is a good comic. Yeah, it was fun. All right, well, I am also jumping back in the wayback machine, but a little bit farther ahead than 1994. My next review is Young Heroes in Love from DC Comics from 1997. The 90s get a pretty bad rap when it comes to comics, but the late 90s were actually a really inventive time for the big two, with a ton of concepts being tossed against the wall to see what stuck. Some of it was pretty iffy. See our later Scare Tactics review, I'm sure. <laughs> but some of it really resonated. Like, for me, Dan Raspler and Dev Madden's Young Heroes in Love. The series revolved around a group of brand new heroes inspired to band together to do good, with some members having pretty shady motivations. This issue is a typical team-building story, giving us a little bit of information about each team member. Raspler's script shows us that not all is what it seems with the young heroes, and Dev Madden's art has a pleasing animated style that feels right at home alongside adaptations of like Batman the animated series and what have you young heroes in love enjoyed a pretty short life on the comic shelves but for me it was a real pleasure to read it was like a trashy superhero soap opera oh uh, yeah it was full of drama and twists and turns and backstabbings it's great it's getting a huge buy it I remember our buddy Big Mike forced me to read this because I was like, I have no interest. I'm just into other stuff right now. I do not care. And uh, <laughs> this, this was way back when I barely knew Mike. Yeah. And uh, he was like, you'll love this. You'll love this. Give it a read. And I fought it. And then years later, I read it as a trade. And I think it was like reissued or something at the time. And came, or no, it wasn't reissued. It came in with somebody like brought in a, a big box of trades. Maybe it came to, in as a collection. Yeah. I, I don't yeah, think, I don't even know if it was ever actually collected in trade form. <laughs> I thought it came. I thought it was a trade that I read, but regardless, uh, I think it. I think it came in as a collection, possibly, and Big Mike pulled him out and said, "Read these." I loved it, totally loved it, and it, I read issue number one again. <laughs> just, just, and it's so trashy and just fun, and oh man, like they weren't, they weren't writing comics like this in the '90s, as far as. Everything was just very surface value, slam bang, superhero, extreme. In the early, in the early nineties, in the yes. early nineties. Well, and, and, and then, that stretched into the late nineties quite but a bit. There's a there's a definite line in the sand for me, where Marvel and DC start putting out these high concept comics, 
Yeah. That just like really raised the bar. And Young Girls like in to, Love was one of them. I would like to really sit down and look at a, a like a 10-year timeline of the 90s of their releases and see if we can pinpoint like that that Hal Jordan moment where the Silver Age started or something, you know? <laughs> like, oh, sure, yeah. Everyone go, that's it. It was that, you know, right. Warren Ellis book or something that everybody went, oh, shit. 90s comics can do this? You right. know, like, yeah, 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 we should do that. And uh, Take like, those stupid spikes off Thor's shoulders. <laughs> like, we're doing this now. You I know? mean, I guess, I guess, I. if I had to pinpoint one, it would be Starman. Which spun out of, of all things, Zero Hour. Yeah. But that was in 1994, so that was still early. I mean, maybe that is when, though. I mean, and we've just villainized this whole decade, you know? Like, forever. Everybody thought 80s music sucked, and it was something to laugh about, and they play on the radio. And then, like, later on, you go, oh, my God, no. The Cutting Crew is actually a really good band. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, and, and, like, for whatever whatever praise we heap for on. For the record, the Cutting Crew is not a really good band. Okay, great. <laughs> okay? I don't want anybody to don't at me, okay? For, for whatever <laughs> praise we might heap on Young Heroes in Love, 1997 is probably also the year that some very shitty crossover oh, came it. out. Uh, I like, it. Uh, I want to say... Genesis, uh, which is terrible. It was the it was the crossover where something happened to the source, and all of the superheroes got different powers. Oh, I did not read that. It's awful. It's terrible. <laughs> but this book is not. I'm giving it a buy it. Flock of Seagulls, on the other hand, legit good band. This guy's fucking rule. Does this book also get a buy it from you? Yeah, I already said I gave it a buy it. I don't know if you did, but okay. Yeah, I did. Right. I, I gave it a huge buy it. I said it was super trashy, fun, and I'm giving it a buy it. Matt Baum, you've got one more review to go. Let's jump ahead one year to 1998 when Scare Tactics hit the stands from DC. This lasted for 12 issues from 1996 to 1998 as part of the DC Weirdoverse, which neither Joe and I... I any recollection of I do whatsoever. not remember it being called that. Okay, it included the Book of Fate, which did not star Doctor Fate, but it did star Fate. It was a it was a Doctor Fate legacy character, right? Yeah. Challengers: The Unknown had a relaunch then, and Night Force. Oof, Night Force. <laughs> Oof. <laughs> Anthony Williams was the artist here with Andy Lanning on inks, who I forgot was an inker at one point before he became a writer. Yeah. And the book really does look good. There's definitely some Kelly Jones influences here, no doubt. It's a story of a ragtag team of classic monsters and some kind of lizard thing as they are turned loose by their Renfield, who is their human keeper, on New York. There's a team of killer priests hunting the very sexy vampire character that dresses in full bondage gear and seems to have no problem walking around in broad daylight dressed like that and not exploding vampire style, but whatever. Once in New York, Scream Queen, our vampire, heads to a rock club, drinks some blood, the priests show up, they find her, and the rest of the monster team shows up to save her by forming a band. Yeah. Seriously, I'm not making this up. <laughs> According to the Scare Tactics Wiki, I can't stay away from him, Len Kaminsky planned to organize a real-life 
fan club for Scare Tactics. Oh, boy. And part of the package would have included, amongst other things, a cassette recording of the song by the fictional band. Oh, I want because it. Because <laughs> in the end of this, they have, like, a full-on, like, Ninja Turtles, like, breakdown. Yeah. Where they get up and play rock and roll. <laughs> and they all know how to play instruments. Even yeah. the sludge monster. Yep. Though he went as far as hiring a band and producing the cassettes out of his own pocket money, DC put a stop to his unlicensed plan before distribution took place. So he did it. He hired a band, paid for it, came with the cassettes. They're like, check it out. And Paul Everts was like, you're fired. <laughs> you know what? Maybe that cassette tape is buried somewhere in that collection of 40,000 oh, DC comics somewhere. that are up for auction. <laughs> I'm sure it is. If you didn't get enough of the team in their short 12-issue run, DC tried to promote the series by having some of the monsters team up with more popular heroes in one-shots that were called oh, yes. Plus, like Plus, yes. Catwoman Plus, featuring yeah. Scream Queen, Impulse Plus, featuring Gross Out, of course, who was the big the sludge, monster. sludge monster thing, yep. Robin Plus, featuring Fang, our werewolf, and Superboy Plus, featuring Slither. Yeah, the lizard man. <laughs> This was terrible. It was just terrible <laughs> schlock. And I get it. Like, I'll give Kaminsky props for trying to do something kind of wacky, kind of funny. The dialogue was not terrible. There was, like, some very, I'm not going to say, like, funny, but there was humor here. And it was fairly intelligent until it just leaps off a cliff because it doesn't know what else to even do yeah. with itself. So, I mean, I'm giving it a leave it because it was just so dumb but you can tell like Kaminsky kind of loved this idea and thought what he was doing was legit sort of funny and edgy like he went to a punk rock show in New York and was like I got an idea for a superhero team you know and it's gonna be just as hard and just as cool only they're monsters sounds great but doesn't look so good on paper <laughs> I'm giving it a leave it <laughs> you know I read this back in the day this came out uh what year 1998 98 all right. Uh, so I read this like right out of right um, during my first year or so of college. I was like, yeah, scare tactics. And I read it again and I'm like, you know what? This isn't bad until they formed the band. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It, it literally fell off a cliff. Yeah. In the end, they're like, oh, we're going to go on tour. Like, yeah. oh. Like, I was what? like, oh, yeah. <laughs> so the. A, a group of monsters on the run with a human sympathizer trying to keep them safe during the day. Great. Yeah, not okay, a bad fine. story at all. Okay. A, a team of like religious zealots hunting them. Yes. This is all, yeah. it's all very, very familiar. It's all tr very tropey. The art is great. Uh, and then they formed the band and I was like, nope, fuck yeah. this. Fuck this shit. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's bad. It, it, the premise is bad. <laughs> uh, and I don't know why anyone would want to read more of it. I'm also giving it a leave it. I, I would argue the, the premise is good. The hook is what sucks. Well, I mean, if the premise includes forming a band and going on tour to avoid getting hunted. No, no see, that's, that's the hook. The premise is monsters, human guy trying to live in, you know, modern day. Okay, go. They form a band. That's the hook. Fuck off. <laughs> you know? Like, yeah. Why don't they it's, just form a professional basketball sure, team? Sure, right. They, could, they, could be, <laughs> they travel too. They know? could be the Monstars, just like Space Jam. Yeah, it'd be awesome. <laughs> no, it it sucks. The, uh, the That whole part of it sucks. I'm giving it a leave it. 
uh, I'm giving the first 15 pages of it a skim it. <laughs> and then the rest of the series, I'll leave it. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, I don't remember what year we are in, but I am jumping to 1994 for none other than Fantastic Force. No, number one from Marvel Comics. This ain't your granddad's Fantastic Four, that's for certain. It sure isn't. In the wake of the Fantastic Four's disbanding for reasons, I don't know, I don't remember. Uh, I don't remember what it was. Uh, the Tom DeFalco FF run is a wild ride, man. Were uh, they dead? No, there there was a there was a time where Mr. Fantastic was presumed dead. And then the FF reformed with Invisible Woman, Namor, Ant-Man, yeah. and, like, Lyja? I don't remember. It doesn't matter. Somebody that sucked. Yeah. I, I can't remember. Uh, it, at, at any rate, at this point in time, the FF has been disbanded, and an aged-up Franklin Richards teams up with his aunt from an alternate timeline, an inhuman teenage were-gorilla, and a Wakandan intern to fill the void. <laughs> Fantastic Force is a product of the height of 90s excess, spin-off upon spin-off, with hollow foil covers and no discernible mission statement other than be awesome. Yeah, this felt like somebody lost a bet and had to write it. <laughs> yes. It seriously did. Yes. Uh, well, even 16-year-old Joe Patrick knew that Fantastic Force was bullshit. <laughs> After about 13 pages of exposition telling the reader where exactly these characters came from and then another 10 or so of incompetent fighting before Black Panther bails them out of course the group decides to stay together and fight evil yeah 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 they can do better yeah they definitely can't you know what if they try their hardest they learn that they suck at this yeah. and they just instead of saying maybe we should get out of the business or do anything else they go no, no. no. We want to try and do better. Let's <laughs> like, go. That let's, is a lesson. <laughs> let's go insert ourselves into real life or death situations. Right. What it's could like go you wrong? tried to jump the motorcycle across the canyon, but you fell off just before the motorcycle jumped, and it <laughs> didn't even come close. It went all the way down, and you would have died. And you, you took away from that. You know what? I need to drive faster. <laughs> if, I, if I had just managed to stay on the motorcycle, right. I bet I would have made it. Yeah, exactly. Like, no, your lesson is stop. <laughs> <laughs> there is a fairly decent art uh, from Dante Bastianoni, uh, who uh, that era of Marvel is full of like weird Italian artists. Yeah, it really was. It was uh, a strange time where like they found a bunch of Italian guys and were like, hey, yeah, Everybody yeah, go on, yeah. get in here. Uh, but it does not make up for the completely overblown dialogue by future Marvel bigwig Tom Brevoort yep. and Mike Kantarevich, who, for all I know, might be dead because uh, nobody heard from him again after this. I think he shot himself. <laughs> uh, disclaimer, I legitimately hope that Mike Kantarevich is is alive and well. Yeah, uh, I do I, too. But if he did shoot himself and fall backwards onto a flaming pile of Fantastic Force comics, <laughs> it would be uh, like Greek tragedy level good. <laughs> yeah. What a way to go. I'm giving Fantastic Force number one a leave it because it is awful. It's garbage. This is this is the garbage that we think of when we think of the 90s. I think this I can't think of a better book that sums up the worst parts of the 90s. Than I, you know what? The I could not stop thinking about the fact 
that in four short years, Kevin Smith and Joe Casada would relaunch Daredevil. Right. Christopher Priest would relaunch Black Panther. Right. Four years is all that separates Marvel Knights from Fantastic Force. <laughs> okay, and I know I'm going to get people coming at me really like, really, that was the worst thing, not this and not this. I'm talking about books that came out from real creators at the big two during this time that were yeah. just garbage. And this was garbage. <laughs> this, this comic... It does literally nothing to justify its existence. Yep. By the way, Joe, you were wrong. I've got one more. I was. I thought so. I thought maybe I missed one, but I think you did. Yeah. I need to talk about the Greek tragedy that is Slingers, number one, <laughs> from Marvel, 1988. A book that maybe we didn't deserve. 1998, right? Pardon me, 1998. Yeah. A book that we may not have deserved but a book that Marvel served to us in a big, heaping spoonful. <laughs> in the wake of Spider-Man Identity Crisis, where Spidey was forced to wear four costumes and fight crime as four different heroes for reasons that I cannot recall. You know, at the, at the time, I was like, yep, makes total sense. And now I'm like, <laughs> why couldn't he have just picked one? <laughs> no shit. Marvel had possibly their worst marketing idea ever. Here's the setup. The Black Marvel, a dead Golden Age character who made a deal with Mephisto <laughs> to get Spidey's old costumes when he came back as Spider-Man, gives the disguises to four kids. They form the Slingers, right? Okay, right. fine. I've heard worse. Because they, definite, they, because they definitely knew that those costumes once belonged to Spider-Man. <laughs> they also fit. All those kids, no problem. Why would they be called the Slingers? <laughs> <laughs> the Slingers' first actual appearance was in the pages of Slinger Zero, yes. a Wizard Magazine exclusive. Right. And in that story, they killed one of the characters. A key plot point, yes. If you, like me, had never read Slingers before in the past, you picked up this issue, you might find yourself saying out loud, who is Dusk now? And, oh, Dusk is dead? <laughs> yeah. You might also find yourself wondering why a team book is centering on one character. In this case, Ricochet. Now, to really drive the terrible marketing thing into the dirt, Marvel printed four different Slinger's first issues yeah. with four different stories that combined into one Four-part first issue. They weren't all completely different. I, I I think only parts of them were different. Parts of them were different, where right. they had a part that centered on Ricochet, a part that centered on, on Hornet, the other, yeah, yeah right. on Hornet, and so on and so forth. The issue I read was pretty solid, I gotta say, even in the face of the really dumb setup and bad marketing idea. Chris Cross was on the art here, and I loved that guy in the 90s. Yes. Him and Adam Polina both created this idea. <laughs> I did not know that. Adam Polina, like, really? Yeah, he worked on the book too. While the story and art weren't bad at all, I have to punish this book because of the story's structure. Looking back in time, it seems like an even worse idea. How were retailers even supposed to order these comics? Although, he was smack dab in the middle of the comics boom of the 90s, so maybe it didn't matter, and you just ordered 100,000. They'll sell. Who cares? I'm giving this a skim it. Just based on the fact that and maybe the creators had nothing to do with it. Maybe it wasn't their fault. But I have a feeling they had this kick-ass idea. 
so I think I think that I read a version that had all four versions Frankenstein together. See, the one that I read was only one of them. And I was like, you know what? That's what's getting reviewed. That is your fault. Marvel. It's not it's not important how I came to find this comic book because it's definitely not how it was released. But I was reading it and I was like, Jesus Christ, this comic never ends. <laughs> Yeah. And it's because it was actually about three and a half comics. Yeah. <laughs> uh, stitched together. Um, the art is great. Crisscross. I've been a fan forever. Oh, yeah. You know, this is kind of early Crisscross, so you can kind of see where he's coming into his own, but he's still kick ass. It's still beautiful. It's beautiful to look at. Uh, Joe Harris is the writer who is a guy that's not around that much anymore, um, though I think he's had some. Uh, uh, indie stuff in the last few years. Uh, but uh, on paper, I'm like, okay, yes, Spider-Man abandoned four perfectly good, compelling superhero identities. Why wouldn't people take up the slack? Uh, but it's the setup is it's too much. So dumb. It's too much. <laughs> it's so uh, dumb. Why would you make a deal with the devil? Why does the devil have his disguises? Like, there's the, like a, you could have just said, oh, the kids found him, you know, or Spidey threw him on a dumpster. Mephisto trades in two things leftover <laughs> costumes and marriages. And marriages. We know yeah. this. Um, Ricochet, I don't know if you remember, there was a spinoff of The Runaways. Yeah, Ricochet showed up there. Uh, and I, I don't remember what it was called. For some reason in my head, it, I feel like it was called The Losers, but that can't be right. No, it wasn't um, that. But it was like a superhero support group for teen superheroes that should have known better. <laughs> and Ricochet <laughs> was one of them. And yeah, that's what I felt. That's all I could think about when reading this book is like, these characters should know better. Johnny, who's Ricochet, Johnny's mother was murdered when Johnny was in, in his early teens. Much later, he discovered that her killer was, you'll never guess, the orphan maker. <laughs> oh, because he was a mutant. He literally made Johnny an orphan. <laughs> it's his one job. Yeah, it's his, he does it really well. Uh, teenage superhero recovery group Excelsior is what they were called. I don't think that's what the comic was called, though. I don't think it was, but the group was called Excelsior. Yeah. Anyway, uh, you know what? I like. I really remember loving this as a as a kid. Uh, you know, in 1998. I was. Uh, I will shit. I was almost 20 years old. Uh, I would have been. I would have been 20 that year. I should have known better myself. But yeah, I was all in. I read that stupid identity crisis uh, uh, storyline in Spider Man. No relation to the DC identity crisis. Um, and I. Yeah, I loved it at the time, and reading it again as a grown-ass man, I'm like, this is a really stupid idea on behalf of all of these children. Oh, that happened in Runaways. Marvel's uh, Ricochet had several guest appearances in the Marvel comic Runaways as a member of Excelsior, a group of former teenage heroes whose goals are to help fellow teenage superheroes adjust to mundane lives. <laughs> but I thought there was an actual comic miniseries based on and them. And to dissuade other superpower teenagers from becoming heroes. <laughs> They're like, don't do it. Yeah. Just yeah. trust me. Get a job. <laughs> Lay low. <laughs> uh, this gets a skim in from me. Uh, we, you know, we've, we've gone on and on. Uh, but yeah, the marketing was insane. My God. The writing just, is decent. The art is great. But it's just too much. 
Yeah, I mean, they pulled this thing out of the womb just and just murdered it. <laughs> Never had a chance. <laughs> <laughs> we now find ourselves in the THN Sanctum Sanctorum once again to shake the magic eight ball of Marduk and reveal the theme of the comics we'll be reviewing next week. Shaka, shaka. No, you gotta go. Shaka, 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 shaka. Yeah, you gotta really shake it. Like Got it. I, I did it. Yeah. It looks like next week we will be reviewing B or below list solo hero titles. First issues. Solo heroes, baby. Stay tuned to our Facebook and Twitter to see which issues we'll be reading, and you can play along. Matt and I have both already made some dibs on some especially interesting reads. Oh, yeah. I grabbed Joe Patrick's speedball number one. <laughs> so you I can have it, it, buddy, <laughs> with my compliments. Joey, let's peer to the cursed mirror of Kazan once again and see what the random trade of the week is for next week. All right. The trade of the week goes to Freedom Fighters Rise of a Nation trade paperback from DC Comics. It's written by Robert Venditti with art by Eddie Barrows. It's 272 pages for $24.99. Here's your solicit. When a Kryptonian rocket crash landed in 1930s Czechoslovakia, the Nazi war machine discovered the most powerful weapon on the planet, Baby Kal-El. More than 50 years later, a new resistance has arisen, the Freedom Fighters. To crush Hitler's regime, the Human Bomb, Phantom Lady, Black Condor, and Doll Woman launch a guerrilla campaign to reignite the American spirit in the hope of bringing Uncle Sam back from the dead. This collects Freedom Fighters 1 through 12. You might remember this uh, getting tons of praise from me last year. It was great. Uh, it was my it was my mini of the year, I believe. Is that last year? Yeah, because it ended last year. Oh, no kidding. Uh, now, this book, I, I think it may have been, st- I think it may have been scheduled to come out on April first, so I'm not sure if it's actually available in comic shops. But look for it; it's worth it. It is one what? of my favorite minis of recent years. Remember, your comic shop needs you, so if you want to read along or just help out, hit up your local comic shop for the trade of the week or maybe some B-list solo hero first issues. I guarantee if you go in there and buy a speedball number one, your retailer will violate your quarantine and kiss you on the mouth. <laughs> At the very least, they will thank you for it. It's time to play Nerd TV again, because every time somebody has a comic book turned into a TV show, Joe and I are forced to watch it. This week, Magdalene Visaggio's Vagrant Queen made the jump to the small screen on sci-fi. Joe and I watched it. Joe Patrick, how did you feel about Vagrant Queen, episode one? Not much. Yeah. You know what? (laughs) Yeah. I went back and I read the comic book right after I watched this first episode because I thought maybe, just maybe, they're trying to capture something here. You know, like they're trying to build on a feeling from the comic book that I don't recall. And they weren't. They weren't at all. This was bad. 
this was just bad. And I don't think there's any bad in production. Like the aliens didn't look good. The costuming was bad. They were obviously running around in warehouses and like cheap sets. The, the effects right. you know I, didn't like, look good. I, I, I will say that it looked sci-fi bad, which mm, to me has, seen, a, has a charm to it. I'm saying it looked worse than sci-fi bad. No, I don't. Agree I don't with mind that. sci-fi bad. Okay, I don't agree like, with I, that. Like, I, I think it looked. I think it didn't look any worse than like Farscape or whatever. Farscape. Do you know when that came out? In the '90s, right? Yeah. This Late is 90s. the year 2020, Joe. <laughs> this is the brand new I show I that looks it. like it came out in the '90s. <laughs> I mean, it's probably low budget. Uh, I for, get that too. For but me, the effects and the creature designs they didn't bother me so much. It uh, stood out for me. It, for me, it was the like I did not care. I didn't care about anything that happened to anyone. Presumably, no. presumably, we're supposed to care about about um, Alita, who is this um, princess on the run after her uh, her family monarchy gets deposed or whatever. Some. Some generic, yeah, very generic. It's like a, they killed your mother, and yeah. she was escaped as a child. Like, great, like, okay. Everything about this comic, uh, comic, well, probably the comic too. Everything about this show seemed like it was borrowing from some other much more successful property. And here's the thing: the comic doesn't. Is the comic great? No, I'm not going to say it's like the best thing ever. I would, I would give it a skim it at best. But the comic felt like it was trying to do a more sort of lighthearted, humorous, modern take on a bunch of sci-fi tropes. This came off as, we're going to try and write some, like, funny, witty dialogue. And well, sure, just, they were trying to be clever like the comic, but it just didn't hit. No, and crush it into these sci-fi tropes. And all that you were left with is a bunch of characters that aren't really good actors delivering lines that aren't very funny in the middle of a bunch of different sci-fi tropes. And so, and they also, from what I read, like I didn't read the comic or I don't remember the comic, but that I little think you reviewed it. <laughs> that little dog guy was invented for the show. Yeah, he was not in the comic, and he, and he was sucks. stupid. Yeah, God, it was dumb. like what the hell? What is his? What is the point of that character? And again, it looked like the character was wearing a hooded sweatshirt with dog ears. Like it wasn't even good. <laughs> it was so. <laughs> and it, I mean, it does have it does have some positive things going for it. It's very like, it's very like um, you know queer forward. Like there's no, there's no like. Uh, hiding you know it's lgbtq influences or whatever which is great and i'm happy for that i have no problem with that and, but yeah it, but you watch this and you're like that's firefly that's star wars absolutely. that's star trek that's farscape uh and it's just like what is vagrant queen yeah i finished the episode and i'm like i don't know what this is yeah casey was like barely paying attention to it and at one point she like looked up and she goes you know this sucks right <laughs> like yes i'm well aware i'm not gonna turn you and tell you you're wrong <laughs> yeah so i mean when it comes down to it we're gonna talk about something that we like here in a second so i'd rather just get to it um, yeah for me skip it I i'm mean, not this was just... i'm not planning on watching any more of this show no there was nothing likable about the characters the actors weren't very good the world, the effects weren't very well rendered. There was just nothing to bring me back. I'm giving it a, a, a skip it all the way. Yep, same. Skip it for me. So we just finished Picard. 
Picard, the finale was last week. The last week was a finale, and there seems to be a very popular theme out there that Picard was really, really good, and then it got super stupid in the last two episodes. Do you agree? No. A lot of people are telling me that I'm wrong when I tell them what? That I loved it. A lot of people are telling me I'm wrong, the end was super stupid, and you're a sappy crybaby, Matt Bomb. And, and I don't get it. I loved it. I uh, love a lot of people ended. are idiots. Did it go full cheese in those like last three episodes? Totally. Do I have a problem with that? Not at all. <laughs> all right. My feeling about the finale of Picard is that it ended with my captain, Jean-Luc Picard, being the most Picard ass Picard he can be. Absolutely. And that's how the conflict was resolved. Yes. And that's how the fucking lingering subplot about his illness was resolved. Even though we're not talking spoilers. Well, I mean, come on. <laughs> no, they announced season two before the show was even three episodes deep. That doesn't mean he's not still dying in season okay. two. Okay. All right. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I like this to me, if you want to look at it and go, this doesn't really feel a ton like Star Trek in general. I agree. I'll give you but some I'll give you some ground in that way. I totally agree, but I would also argue that it should not. We are much further into the future yes. of this world where things yes. are different and they've right. established that. Right. Discovery is even very different. And and what makes this to me so good is that this is the characters that we love reacting to the changes of the world around them. Yes. And if you want to argue that this isn't this doesn't feel like Star Trek, fine. But if you want to argue that this doesn't feel like Picard, I will tell you to fuck right off. Yeah, you are totally wrong. And the whole story is that Picard is a relic. He is a leftover. Yes. Of an age gone by that does not exist anymore. And he barely recognizes Starfleet. And he had to go against them to... Once again, be Picard, be who he is. The same right. thing that the reason that he left Starfleet. And if you want to argue, if you want to argue that it was silly with the, you know, the replicants and whatnot, or replicants, uh, uh, synthetics, the synthetics. I mean, this is exactly how he would act in that situation. I bought every bit of it. Maybe it, and yes, it did get a little cheesy with the head replica, you know, the head synthetic that looked just like Soji, but she was like orange and had evil eyes. She was an, <laughs> like, if she was a straight up data. Yeah. I mean, more like or less. Android. Yeah. Right. And Brent Spiner was there as the son of the guy that created data and everything. And I he, love that so much. I liked it too, but he did kind of like change his tune really quick and be like, fuck you, Picard. Fuck everybody else. <laughs> we got to kill him. <laughs> I, feel like, I feel like he didn't because his whole thing was preserving synthetic life. And when they found out the Romulans are coming to extinguish us, he was all in on protecting them. That's and, true. And that That's was true. the character yeah. from, from his appearance, from his first yeah. appearance. Um, but yeah, I... I loved it. I loved the finale. I loved the send off to a beloved character that it made me weep. Oh, I cried. Uh, I cried. I, Hands over my mouth. And I'm saying out loud, this is too much. This is just too much. Yeah. <laughs> I, I love Discovery. I love it. I love it very much. But I will totally agree with anyone that says that it doesn't really feel like Star Trek to them. I will totally agree. I get but, that. But Picard to me was 
it was a return to form for one of my favorite, uh, one of my favorite sci-fi concepts of all time. I also feel like it was the answer to that criticism in saying, yes, we also agree. And here's a character that you recognize that is from that Star Trek that you recognize saying that he also doesn't feel real. He doesn't feel in place in this universe. Right. But he's not going to let that stop him from being who he is and trying to make it a better place. And I think Star Trek, again, I'm just going to say it. I think Star Trek is in a better place than Star Wars, hands down. No question. <laughs> that, that's that's a nonsense distinction to make because they are two completely different properties. I agree. I'm just saying as far as I feel about the future of both, I feel like I am more excited to see what happens in the Star Trek universe right now than I am in the Star Wars universe. Okay, I'll agree with that. But, That's what I'm saying. But I've always, I've always loved Star Trek more than Star Wars. Oh, same um, here. I'll, I'm a Trekkie first and foremost, without a doubt. It, like, like it, and it's not that the series doesn't have its flaws. Like you can make a solid argument that the, um, the decision to make it one long story arc, like all of like peak TV of this era, is is not in keeping with the typical ethos of Star Trek. Right. Um. But the characters were spot on every time. I understand they were being manipulative. They totally like reached into my heart and played me. They tuned me like a piano. This was also not a typical Star Trek story in the fact that it was following a character arc. Correct. Yes. And they had to tell, they were telling the story of the, the show is called Picard. It's not called Star Trek Discovery or Deep Space Nine or right. Enterprise or any of those. Yeah, yeah. The show is called Picard. So it is a character arc. And that is why it was told that way. And I'm glad they did it that way because I don't want to see 10 random adventures of Captain Picard and his ragtag crew. I what don't What would be the that. point? Right. Yeah. It uh, was wonderful. Picard is a huge watch it. I'm super excited for more yeah. Picard. I want to see where they go from here because I do feel like they definitely had an idea for the end of this season thinking this is a one season story. (laughs) They planned, they announced that there was going to be a Picard season two when Picard season one was maybe three weeks in. So no, I agree, but you can't tell me they didn't have those scripts written and they didn't rewrite some stuff. No, no, no. I'm I'm saying (laughs) that this was always going to be a one season arc. Right. And that season two will be a different arc. Okay, I guess I meant, what I'm saying is, I thought maybe the original idea was, this would be one season, and we're done. Oh, uh, I don't think so. And then they were like, nope, we should do two seasons. And they talked talked Jean-Luc into it. (laughs) I I don't know. I don't know. It didn't feel like that to me. Uh, I am totally excited for more. It's a huge watch it. I I agree with you. Star Trek right now, uh, at least on TV, is firing on all cylinders. And I'm loving every second of it. Excelsior! (laughs) That is it for THN 567. And even though Corona almost killed comics, folks, we still got a show here. Joe Patrick, give these nerds a new question of the week to stay six feet away from while they answer. All right. This week's question was submitted by Phil Lee via the THN forums. Just read X-Men Grand Design the best index slash summary of any comic franchise yet. What title would you pick 
for the grand design treatment and what independent creator or creators would you choose? Phil's example, Alpha Flight by Jeff Lemire, Suicide Squad by Michelle Fifa. That is a fucking no-brainer. Yeah. It doesn't have to be a Marvel title. Just give me those designs. I love it. Now look, guys. We're trying an experiment here. Obviously, cover to cover is no more. Uh, and I, I, our intention is to still feature your calls uh, in some form. And right now, our decision is to put those on the website so that we can include everybody as well as written responses, etc. Here's the thing. You got to give us some calls. We got two <laughs> calls is all. Come Saturday, on Saturday came and went. No calls. Uh, so please, please, please answer the question of the week. If you can't call, post something. Post it on the forums. Post it on the Facebook where I post the question. Yeah. It doesn't matter. Give me something. We want to hear from you guys. Interactivity has always been the best part of the show. And just because we can't talk to you live, it doesn't mean we don't want to talk to you. You can send those MP3s to twoheadednerd at gmail.com or leave a voicemail at 402-819-4894. I'm going to cut that previous joke about the Jew. Great. Good idea. If you're new to this show and you're pretty sure we are part of the deep state Hillary loving media that wants you to believe that there's a coronavirus because we want to destroy America. Wait a minute. I thought Trump was part of the deep state. No, 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 no. He's fighting the deep state. Do you even pay attention? The deep state are the ones that are uh, that are abusing children and stuff. He is carrying the flaming sword and fighting the sex molesters. Isn't Trump abusing children? Oh my God, Joe Patrick! I assure you, you're wrong, and you should be washing your hands. And maybe you just haven't heard enough. The good news is, you can hear the entire run of THN in our digital long box archive over at twoheadednerd.com. But hosting that many shows, it ain't cheap. So we want to thank donors like Joe Wrinkly. Love that guy. Wrinkles. Wrinkles. <laughs> he sounds like a wrinkly character, if you know what I mean. <laughs> I do not. Before we go, our weekly shout-out goes to writer Robert Venditti, who has started the hashtag PullBoxPayItForward this week. The idea is that you contact your local comic shop and offer to pay off a couple of customer pull boxes. Oh, wow. That helps fans keep caught up and it helps local comic shops pay their bills. That is awesome. Word to you, Robert, and word to everyone else that's working to keep local shops alive. I was going to offer to pay off Keith Binder's uh, pull file, but it's so huge that it just he does not deserve that. He's beyond repair. <laughs> <laughs> Until... Next time, True Believers, remember to pre-order your comics or your retailer might just pay your pile forward to someone who deserves it. This is the Two-Headed Nerd, signing off.